Welcome to Peacemaking in Paris, presented by Professor Sir Hugh Strawn for UCL Institute of Education. This series marks the centenary of the Peace Conference in 1919, when the United States and Allied powers met in Paris to decide the terms of the peace settlements with the defeated Central Powers. I'm Simon Bendry, Director of UCL Institute of Education's First World War Centenary Battlefield Tours programme. In an earlier podcast series, From Amiens to Armistice, Sir Hugh looked at the sequence of Allied victories from the Battle of Amiens on the 8th of August 1918 to the armistice negotiated by Germany on the 11th of November 1918. In Peacemaking in Paris, he reflects on the peace conference and its legacy. In this podcast, he considers the period from the signing of the armistice up until the 28th of June 1919, when the German Republic, as it then was, signed the Treaty of Versailles with the Allies. It's important to remember that when the Allied leaders assembled in Paris for the peace negotiations, the war had ended effectively a year earlier than they had anticipated. As a consequence, they arrived still thinking on the hoof, still trying to work out what the political situation is on the ground, and often it is very confused because there is still fighting going on in Eastern and Central Europe, and still uncertain as to what they themselves want to achieve through the negotiation of this peace settlement. Germany, for its part, was expecting to negotiate a peace on the basis of Woodrow Wilson's 14 points, which Wilson had spelt out on the 8th of January 1918. Although they had generated some cynicism among Allied statesmen, the 14 points had captured the imagination of publics across Europe. They seemed to promise a new world order, particularly a new European order, an order which would be regulated by an international body to be called the League of Nations, and an order in which states would be identified not as empires, but as nations. They would have the right to national self-determination. So when Wilson arrived in France in December 1918, on the west coast at Brest, The crowds had already assembled to cheer, and that enthusiasm only grew as he made his way to Paris. Here is a man who seems to be promising truly that this will be the war to end all wars. The view among the statesmen was, here was a man who really didn't understand the realities of European politics, how exposed one state was to another particularly, of course, when they had common land frontiers as France and Germany did, who didn't understand how much Europe had suffered through this war and therefore how much a peace settlement would have to include some element of retribution and of reparation to make up for those sufferings. Wilson himself was criticised for not immediately going to the devastated areas of northern France and seeing shattered landscapes and broken villages. By the time that Wilson did tour the Western Front, it was seen by many as too late. His reputation, at least among those working closely with him, had been damaged. And the Americans who were close to him were worried that the president had decided to be the United States's principal negotiator. Today, if we were trying to sort out an international treaty, 
we would have diplomats in place doing the hard graft of negotiation. We could not countenance the President of the United States being away from Washington for six months. Six months is a long time for the President not to be in the country that he's meant to be running, but a very short time in terms of the negotiating period it allows for ending what has become an incredibly complicated war. So there are pressures to expand the period of negotiation, to get a settlement that is lasting, and pressures to get on with it, because Wilson in particular of the Allied leaders needs to get home to the United States. Because Woodrow Wilson comes to France, he puts pressure on the other national leaders also to come to France, including Lloyd George for Britain and Orlando for Italy. Clemenceau, being the Premier of France, is of course already in Paris. These four leaders, Wilson, Lloyd George, Clemenceau and Orlando, become known as the Big Four. The Big Four will take the lead in the negotiations with Germany, but all the other countries who had fought on the Allied side are also represented in Paris. So this is an extraordinary international gathering with hotels being commandeered for weeks at a time, retinues of diplomats and civil servants who will be pouring over the maps of Europe, trying to decide what the frontiers of the new states that will be created are to be, and to decide the terms in detail. The trouble is that there is a falling out between these countries who had fought on the Allied side they were able to unite to win the war, they're less able to stay united for the purposes of making the peace. As a consequence, they create opportunities for each of them to exploit the other. Britain is looking for comparative advantage over France, France is looking for comparative advantage over Britain, and so on. This produces tension, the possibility for a bit of horse trading, but it means that the idealism with which this whole negotiation begins becomes shattered. The problem for Germany is somewhat different. Germany had entered these negotiations on the basis of what they had thought they had negotiated through the armistice, which is the 14 points that Wilson had enunciated in January 1918. Wilson had never accepted a negotiation of the armistice on the basis of the 14 points. And by the time he gets to Paris in 1919, those points clearly mean very different things to very different people in very different parts of Europe. There is one of the 14 points that is simply unacceptable to Britain, and that is the requirement that there should be freedom of the seas. Britain sees that as incompatible with the maintenance of British naval supremacy. In the end, that is probably more negotiable than the requirement that there should be national self-determination. Think, for example, of the obvious French claim that Alsace-Lorraine, the two provinces which they had forfeited to Germany as a result of their defeat in 1871, should be returned. Alsace-Lorraine, in 1919, contained a mix of Germans and of French. There were those who said that there should be a plebiscite to decide whether they should be within France or within Germany. For France, the return of Alsace-Lorraine was simply non-negotiable. 
and that was a commitment that France's allies were ready to stand by too. But it doesn't conform with the notion of national self-determination. The idea of a plebiscite clearly did. What actually happened was that German families found themselves being pushed out of Alsace-Lorraine as refugees as they returned to what was left of Germany after the end of the First World War. Because of the implications of the 14 points, Germany expected that they would have a say in the terms that would be settled, that this would not be a dictated peace. German delegates are travelling to Paris on a regular basis, roughly every 30 days, because they're having to renegotiate and reaffirm the terms of the armistice, this temporary pause in the fighting. During that period, Allied concerns mount. They're worried that Germany is trying to escape the terms of the armistice, that ultimately they will reject the peace settlement. So that heightens the sense among the Allies that they should be harsh. There are large numbers of diplomatic teams trying to draw up settlements for different countries, of which Germany is the most important, but trying to do it at speed going into self-contained silos to look at particular problems and come up with particular solutions which don't stack up as a combined settlement. When it comes to Germany in particular, the Allies are only fully aware of what they are demanding of Germany by the end of May. It's only then that they have everything together in one document that they see what the full impact for Germany will be. Two people in particular on the British side Jan Christian Smuts, the South African general and politician, and John Maynard Keynes, the economist, realised just how significant the demands on Germany will be. The Germans are presented with what is effectively a fait accompli. They are given a document of about 350 pages, which they are to take back to Berlin to get approved without any basis for further discussion. While the Germans are digesting the terms that have been presented to them back in Berlin during the course of June 1919, the Allies are assimilating the full impact of the peace treaty that they have put together. And it creates nervousness. They are aware that the Germans might well feel that these terms are unacceptable. The Times newspaper in London regularly reports to that effect. And one of the most striking manifestations of this is the decision of Admiral von Reuter commanding the high seas fleet in its internment in the British base at Scapa Flow in the Orkneys to scuttle his fleet. He does that on the 21st of June 1919 because his expectation is that Germany will reject the peace treaty, that the fighting will resume, and what he doesn't want to do is to leave the German Navy available for British use. There are four areas of the peace treaty that generate anxiety on the part of the Allies that the peace treaty as a whole will be rejected and real animosity on the part of the Germans and become the basis of subsequent grievances. The first and most conspicuous of these areas is the question of Germany's frontiers. Wilson's 14 points had talked about national self-determination. In 1919, Germans were to be found as far west as Alsace and Lorraine, 
and as far east as the Baltic states. They were to be found scattered way beyond Germany's borders as they were in 1914, let alone the borders that they will be asked to accept in 1919. The particular area of difficulty is not so much the western frontiers as the eastern frontiers. Here, there is a real fear on the part of the Allies that the Bolsheviks from Russia will have an influence in Germany. There could even be a Bolshevik takeover in Germany. Russia has not been part of the peace negotiations. Technically, that was because Russia had already left the war by the time of the armistice in November 1918. It had agreed terms with Germany at the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk in March 1918. But in any case, the Allied powers were not keen to see Bolsheviks in Paris. They were fearful of socialist revolution at home, and they were fearful of Bolshevism spreading from the east to the west, and particularly into Germany and the dismembered Austro-Hungarian Empire. The frontiers that the Allies are negotiating for Germany's eastern border are not easily defined because these are disputed areas, disputed between Germany and Russia, and disputed because of the principle of national self-determination. The most obvious example might be Poland. Poland in 1914 is divided between Germany, Austria, Hungary, and Russia. In 1919, the peace settlement will recreate the state of Poland, which has not existed since 1795. The recreation of Poland means that there is a viable state in Central Europe placed on Germany's eastern frontier. And for France, that is a crucial element of how it sees European security. In 1914, it had Russia as an ally on Germany's eastern frontier. Now Poland has to take that role. Moreover, Poland can be a buffer between Germany and Bolshevik Russia, can be a way of preventing the penetration of Bolshevism into Central and Western Europe. The problem with this solution is that many parts of Poland have been integral to Germany for centuries and are populated by Germans. The most controversial is the so-called Danzig Corridor. The need, as it is seen, to make Poland viable includes a requirement for a port for access to the Baltic. And as a result, Danzig, Gdansk today, becomes a port for Poland linked by a corridor to the main part of Poland. The need to create a viable state is problematic because it offends Woodrow Wilson's principle of national self-determination. There are Germans in what was formerly East Prussia who now find themselves behind a Polish border and cut off from Germany. Exactly the same problem will arise with the creation of Czechoslovakia which includes what Germany calls the Sudetenland. Again, there will be Germans who will be inside Czechoslovakia and outside Germany. So the 14 points are being breached at their source from the very beginning of the peace settlement. The second area in which Germany feels itself particularly affronted is the size and shape of its army. The strength of the army is fixed at 100,000 men. This is not big enough to defend Germany, let alone to enable Germany to become an aggressive power, which of course is what 
worries Britain and France and Germany's neighbors. There are political thinkers in Germany in 1919, like Max Weber, who say a state to be viable must be able to defend itself. Germany, as it's constructed in 1919, can't do this. The army may be big enough to keep internal order, and that is a problem in Germany in 1919, but it's not big enough to protect Germany. So from the very beginning, the German Republic is trying to find ways to subvert the Versailles Agreement. What Germany does is use covert organizations to maintain other military forces, organizations which can become militarized if need arises. For example, the body that is set up to write its official history of the First World War is effectively a putative general staff. Germany is not allowed to have a general staff under the terms of Versailles, but it keeps its general staff officers in employment by getting them to write military history. The third and the most controversial, certainly in the long term, of the articles contained in the Treaty of Versailles was the so-called war guilt clause. This stated that Germany and its allies were responsible for the First World War and for the damage and destruction it had caused. Germany was not singled out as being solely responsible for this war. All the central powers were held responsible and indeed all suffered as a consequence of that responsibility. Although Germany protested the most loudly, Hungary suffered far worse than Germany ever did, at least proportionately, for its so-called guilt. The war guilt clause was controversial from the very beginning. Indeed, its origins go back to the propaganda battle that is fought during the war itself. From the moment the war breaks out in 1914, the issue of who had caused it would be the central debate within the propaganda of the two sides. In Allied thinking, Germany had propelled its allies into the war and was guilty of causing this war. In German thinking, there had been a breakdown in the international system and there was therefore a collective responsibility. That debate continues to this day. It became particularly potent after the Second World War when Germany was accused, rightly enough, of causing a further major conflict within Europe with even more disastrous consequences. The war guilt clause legitimised the charging of Germany for the costs of the war. All that was established in 1919 about reparations is the principle. The precise sum is left for further negotiation. In the event, hyperinflation takes over in Germany and as a result erodes the true value of the sums being asked. Ultimately, Germany will only pay a fraction of what is expected of it. This does not stop Germany treating reparations as illegitimate and excessive. By the late 1920s, the Germans have put together a series of forceful arguments that in combination delegitimize the Treaty of Versailles. They argue that the 14 points were not properly applied, that the principle of national self-determination has become the basis for a victor's peace rather than a genuinely fair settlement. They argue that they were not responsible for causing the First World War, that there was a collective responsibility and therefore they reject the case for war guilt. And they argue as a consequence of that, they should not be paying reparations and that in any case the reparations demanded of them 
were excessive. This becomes the basis not just for Versailles being delegitimized by the Germans, but increasingly delegitimized in the eyes of international opinion. There is a sense, certainly in Britain, less in France, that Germany's been hard done by. And Germans of liberal persuasion in the late 1920s are as persuaded of many of these arguments as are those who are increasingly attracted to the radical right and to the rise of the Nazi party. However, to argue that there is a straight line between the Treaty of Versailles in 1919 and the outbreak of the Second World War in 1939 is to ignore the intervening 20 years. It is not the case that what is decided at Versailles in 1919 is responsible for the outbreak of the Second World War. It requires, above all, the rise of Hitler to ensure that the case against Versailles is used as the basis for a war that will win back what Germany has lost. The liberal Germans of the late 1920s, who were persuaded of the arguments against Versailles, were not in themselves ready to take up arms to overthrow the Treaty of Versailles. There is a failing on the Allied side too. The Allies fall out among themselves as to whether or not they should be determined and strong in the implementation of the terms of Versailles. Britain in particular is hesitant about imposing the full terms of the treaty. And the fact that the Allies have not allowed the Germans a viable army for national self-defense leads them to turn a blind eye to the ways in which Germany is secretly rearming. In a sense, therefore, the Allies, the victorious powers, are condoning the Germans' view that this treaty is illegitimate. They don't take a strong line and say, these are the terms of the treaty, we're sticking by them. They lose the unity that they had had at the end of 1918, at the moment of victory, when it comes to the imposition of the peace that they want to make lasting. In the next podcast, I shall look at the United States in more detail, its entry onto the world stage, and the vision of a new world order developed by its president, Woodrow Wilson. That was Professor Sir Hugh Strawn. You have been listening to Peacemaking in Paris, a Chrome Radio production for UCL Institute of Education. The producer was Katrina Oliphant, with sound design by Chris Sharp.